0: Today on Legalese, we are going to be talking about a fantastic ruling out of the Fifth Circuit in which the court held that a police detective who sought an arrest warrant against an individual for merely criticizing that officer in a private email based on a law that the police knew to be unconstitutional at the time clearly violates a citizen's First and Fourth Amendment rights, and as such, this officer does not qualify for qualified immunity.
1: In the case of Rogers V. Smith, the court finds in favor of... Fuck the police. Hey. Fuck the police coming straight from the underground. A young nigga got it bad cause I'm brown. And not the other color so police think. They have the authority to kill a minority. Hey. Fuck the police.
0: Now, also in this episode, I'm going to be uh, using this case a little later on to discuss what is to me one of the most common and most vexing myths within the whole of American jurisprudence. And this has to do uh, with the crucial distinction between a court's findings that a law is unconstitutional and a legislature's decision to repeal the law. Hey, greetings, everybody, and welcome back once again to Legal As always, I am your host, Bob, and I want to thank you all so much for joining me here today. Now, if you happen to be new to my channel, let me especially welcome you. This is the podcast where we're going to be discussing all things constitutional law, as well as current events in other areas of law, politics, and culture. Uh, And if you are new to the channel, let me just quickly let you know here uh, that if you want to find out more about me or about the show, you can go to my show's homepage. That is legallyspodcast.com, And there you can find uh, more about me, uh, about the show. Uh, You can contact me. uh, You can find past episodes of the show, read my articles, buy my book, all kinds of cool stuff you can do over there. And another page to check out is uh, legaleseshow.com and that will uh, take you to a page where you can sign up for my newsletter. Now, I don't just post content here uh, on YouTube. I, I do videos on YouTube. Uh, I do uh, podcast episodes over on Spotify, and I also publish articles over on Substack, so if you want to get informed whenever I put out any new content, wherever that content may be, go to legallyshow.com. There you can sign up for my newsletter, and you will get updates whenever I put out new content, wherever or whatever it is. So the show page is legallypodcast.com. The newsletter is legallyshow.com. All right, so let's get to uh, the case here we are talking about. This is a case... Uh, Rogers v. Smith out of the Fifth Circuit. Now, in some ways, I think it has to be said that this is a sad indictment of our system that I find it worth celebrating merely the fact that the court said, you know, well, yes, this police officer clearly violated your constitutionally protected individual rights. And the court didn't follow that up with, well, even though 42 USC section 1983 clearly creates a cause of action for deprivation of rights under color of law, your undeniable deprivation of rights cannot proceed because you have failed to state a claim for which relief can be granted. Too bad. Don't let the door hit you on the way out, probably because the door has qualified immunity too. But in the end, I guess I will celebrate a victory wherever I can get it. Uh, liberty, as Thomas Jefferson said, is indeed a game of inches. So uh, anyways, let's jump in to the, the circuit's opinion here in the case of Rogers v. Smith. So the background you need to know is that in Louisiana, they have a criminal libel law now, this law was repealed in 2021, but before it had been repealed, the law had been previously held unconstitutional as to prosecutions for libels of public officials and more broadly as to prosecutions for libels on matters of public concern. Now, in the initial case, which went before the Eastern District Court for Louisiana, a Judge Jane Trish Malazzo in her opinion, for the case held that an arrest for allegedly libeling a police officer violated the Fourth Amendment and also allowed a First Amendment retaliation claim and some other claims could move forward as well. Now, this case arises out of an arrest of the plaintiff, one Jerry Rogers. Uh, He was arrested for criminal defamation. The defendants in this case are, are from St. Tammany Parish, and they are Sheriff Officer Randy Smith, Chief Nanny Culpepper, and Sergeant Keith Canazzaro, in their individual and official capacities. Now, the plaintiff in the case uh, alleges that he had worked For the St. Tammany Parish Sheriff's Office, which uh, moving forward I will just simply refer to as the STPSO. So, the plaintiff worked for the STPSO from 1998 to 2009 before leaving for other employment. Now, on July 14th of 2017, uh, a woman named Nanette Krentel was murdered in St. Tammany Parish. Now, her murder remains unsolved. The plaintiff in this case had been following the news coverage of the murder investigation and, based on his personal experience, became very critical of some of the actions being taken here by the STPSO. So he began communicating with Krentel's family members by email about his concerns, and specifically the plaintiff here was critical of the lead investigator, Detective Danny Buckner. And so at some point, the STPSO became aware of these emails and began to investigate their source. Now, the plaintiff alleges that upon discovering that it was the plaintiff who was the officer of the emails, the STPSO sought the advice of the district attorney's office, and they were advised... That in a U.S. Supreme Court case, Garrison v. Louisiana, all the way back in 1964, that they had declared Louisiana's criminal defamation law, which is found in Louisiana Revised Statute Section 1447, was unconstitutional as to public officials, and therefore the charges against a plaintiff would be unconstitutional. And despite this, The defendants just went ahead and arrested the plaintiff for criminal defamation anyway. Now, if we jump forward to September 16th of 2019, uh, Cannizzaro was granted an arrest warrant for the plaintiff for a violation of that law, Louisiana Revised Statute, Section 1447. Now, in the affidavit, for the arrest warrant, Cannizzaro certified that Rogers' emails referred to the lead investigator as, quote, clueless. He also provided, uh, according according to Cannizzaro in the affidavit, Rogers provided false information regarding the investigator's experience and ability. Now he made derogatory remarks about him and others. The plaintiff alleges that the affidavit also stated falsely The Krentel's family requested assistance in identifying the author of these emails. Now, what the officers failed to tell the judge when obtaining this warrant is that the Louisiana Supreme Court had already ruled decades ago that the criminal defamation law is unconstitutional when it comes to public officials like the police detective that Rogers criticized. Now, the officers also failed to tell the judge that when they discussed this case with the district attorney's office, that they had been informed that this law was unconstitutional. Now, this meant that the judge had a distorted view of what the officers knew And although the officers knew their warrant was constitutionally defective, they went ahead and arrested Rogers anyway. So the plaintiff would be arrested on September 16th of 2019 and released on bail the same day. Now ultimately, the Louisiana Department of Justice declined to prosecute the criminal charges against him. And after prosecutors declined to pursue the case, Rogers would then go on to sue the police officers in federal court for violating his First Amendment rights and for falsely arresting him. Now, when the district court denied these officers claims of qualified immunity, they would appeal up to the Fifth Circuit. Now, in uh, the case before the Fifth Circuit, The officers acknowledged that they were aware that Louisiana's criminal defamation statute had been held unconstitutional in the context of criticism of the official conduct of public officials. And that this goes back to the case of Garrison v. Louisiana, in which the U.S. Supreme Court held, quote, We hold that the Louisiana statute, as authoritatively interpreted by the Supreme Court of Louisiana, incorporates constitutionally invalid standards in the context of criticism of official conduct of public officials. Now, in another case a few years later, State v. Snyder, the Louisiana Supreme Court would go on to not only enjoin garrison, but to expand the principles enunciated in garrison. So in that case, The court held that Louisiana's revised statute, Section 1447, as well as two other uh, related sections of the law, 1448 and 1449, were unconstitutional insofar as they attempt to punish public expression and publication concerning public officials, public figures, and private individuals who are engaged in public affairs. Now, they would argue, however, that because the defamed party in the case was STPSO Deputy Detective Buckner, who they argue is not a public official, the case law declaring the statute unconstitutional is inapplicable, and that a right was not clearly established. However, Both the Louisiana Supreme Court and the Fifth Circuit have held that a police officer is a public official. Now, the defendants then suggest that because there is no case directly addressing whether a police officer is a public official in the context of Louisiana's criminal defamation statute, then the constitutional right was not clearly established. But The Supreme Court has already held that there need not be a case directly on point, but rather, existing precedent must have been placed that the statutory or constitutional question is beyond debate. Here, it is well settled in Louisiana law both that a police officer is a public official and that Louisiana's criminal defamation statute is unconstitutional as applied to public officials. And indeed, prior to this law's repeal in 2021, the law had been included in the unconstitutional statutes biannual report delivered to Louisiana's legislature in 2016, 2018 and 2020 And in addition, the plaintiff also presents evidence that the DA specifically told the defendants that a police officer is a public official, and that he also said the plaintiff's arrest would be unconstitutional. Now, in his deposition, uh, defendant Culpepper admitted that he was specifically told by the district attorney's office that it would be unconstitutional to arrest the plaintiff. And STPSO Captain Godot likewise testified that the decision to arrest plaintiff was made after being informed that the criminal defamation statute was unconstitutional, according to the DA. And finally, the issuance of a warrant, the Fifth Circuit says, is not a guarantee of qualified immunity, where, on an objective basis, it is obvious that no reasonably competent officer would have concluded that a warrant should issue. This court finds that no reasonable officer could have believed that probable cause existed where the unconstitutionality of Louisiana's criminal defamation statute, as applied to public officials, has long been clearly established and where the officers had been specifically warned, the arrest would be unconstitutional. Now, notably, the warrant application for the plaintiff's arrest also admitted, omitted, key information when it failed to advise the judge regarding the DA's position that the arrest would be unconstitutional. Both that judge and Sheriff Smith would testify that the information provided by the DA should have been included in the affidavit in support of the arrest warrant. And accordingly, the fact that the defendants arrested the plaintiff pursuant to a warrant simply does not protect them from liability. Now, the Fifth Circuit goes on to say that the plaintiff here has correctly argued that there was no probable cause for his arrest. And accordingly, the plaintiff is entitled to summary judgment on his false arrest and false imprisonment claims under both federal and state law. Now, the uh, Fifth Circuit would go on uh as sort of a postscript almost to note that a properly crafted criminal libel law uh for instance one limited to knowing lies or statements made knowing that they are very likely false while tracking the actual malice standard applicable in civil cases would likely have been constitutional even applied to this speech about government officials but Louisiana law has never been revised to comply with those First Amendment rules set forth starting with the case of New York Times v. Sullivan and has thus been invalidated as unconstitutionally overbroad and at least as to speech about public officials or speech on public matters and public concerns. All right, at this point, uh, we are. Uh, that's all I really have for you on that case. But I want to move on to another topic here now. Uh, and this is one that we certainly have discussed here on the show, though it has been a very long time. So it may not be familiar to many people. Uh, and this is what is known as the writ of erasure fallacy. So I want to use this opportunity to talk about this is one of the biggest myths in constitutional law. And this has to do with the power of judicial review and the way many people seem to view it as akin to a veto, wherein a court can, as people often say, quote, strike down and quote, or render void a duly enacted statute. Now, rid of erasure fallacy uh, is a complicated sounding term that expresses something that should actually just be an obvious fact. That is that the federal judiciary has no authority to alter or annul a statute. Now this is simple separation of powers 101 here. If the only way to repeal a standing law is an amendment to the law, and if the only people with the constitutional authority to write alter or repeal a law is the legislature, then no judge is ever delegated the power to, as people say, strike down a law in the manner that most people imagine they are doing so. Now, it also violates a fundamental common law doctrine of estoppel, which dictates that courts enjoin people, not laws. Now, in a great article called The Rid of Erasure Fallacy, uh, written by uh, Jonathan Mitchell, which will, of course, be linked on the show notes page, uh, he does a lot of research into this topic, really for the first time very authoritatively, and in his research, he found the following, that the federal judiciary had no authority to alter or annul a statute, that the power of judicial review is more limited, it allows a court To decline to enforce a statute and to enjoin the executive from enforcing that statute, but the judicially disapproved statute continues to exist as a law until it is repealed by the legislature that enacted it, even as it goes unenforced by the judiciary or the executive. And it is always possible that a future court might overrule the decision and declare that statute unconstitutional thereby liberating the executive to resume enforcing the statute against anyone who has violated it judicial review he says is not a power to suspend or strike down legislation it is a judicially imposed non-enforcement policy that lasts only as long as the courts adhere to the constitutional objections that persuaded them to thwart the statute's enforcement Now, as I'm sure is very obvious to see here, this is a myth that has a lot of practical real-world consequences. And in another article that I will, of course, link to on the show notes page by Howard Wasserman called A Step Toward a Proper Understanding of Constitutional Litigation, uh, this article, Wasserman is actually directly addressing uh, and expanding on Mitchell's article. So, Wasserman goes on to highlight why this myth led to the Supreme Court going astray in Plessy v. Ferguson. He points out that Mitchell illustrates the nefarious effects of the writ of erasure fallacy in two doctrines. The first involves the Civil Rights Act of 1875. This was a late Reconstruction statute that prohibited race discrimination in places of public accommodation. Now, in the civil rights cases, the court held that the Congress lacked the authority under Section 5 of the 14th Amendment to prohibit private racial discrimination while treating the statute as void for all purposes. By purporting to erase the act, however, the court disabled its future uses, such as against discrimination on a train traveling in interstate commerce or against state-compelled racial segregation in Plessy v. Ferguson. And as to the latter, Mitchell argues that the court should have held that the 1875 statute, still extant as federal law, preempted the discriminatory state law. So, In other words, the Louisiana segregation law should have been preempted by the 1875 Civil Rights Act. However, the Plessy Court rejected that argument based on the myth that the federal law had been struck down. Now, the Civil Rights Act of 1875 guaranteed the full and equal enjoyment of public conveyances on land, including trains, to citizens of every race and color. The Plessy Court found that the civil rights cases held the act was unconstitutional and void. However, recall the civil rights cases concluded that Congress merely lacked the power under Section 5 of the 14th Amendment to regulate private business. So given that, is the Civil Rights Act of 1875 still constitutional, as applied to state action, such as the Louisiana Segregation Law? And if so, why does that federal statute not preempt the Louisiana
2: Segregation Law?
0: Now, according to Jonathan Mitchell's research, the answer to that question would be that a statute that the Supreme Court has declared unconstitutional is not void. And even if a prior Supreme Court opinion describes it as void, that is still the case. The statute remains a law until it is repealed, and it must be enforced by the courts to the extent they can do so consistent with the Constitution. So, even if one accepts that the civil rights case's interpretation of the Constitution is correct, That means only that Congress cannot reach purely private discrimination under its Section 5 enforcement powers. It does not excuse courts from enforcing the Civil Rights Act of 1875 in cases involving racial discrimination that is sanctioned in some way by the state or done under state authority. Now, The Plessy Court would essentially fall victim here to the writ of erasure fallacy. It assumed that the civil rights cases had canceled or voided or struck down, whatever you want to say, the statutory provisions in the Civil Rights Act of 1875. While the fact is, these statutes remain on the books and compel the courts to act against state mandated racial discrimination in places of public accommodation. Now, Mitchell also rebuts another facet of the writ of erasure myth, and that is when the Supreme Court declares a law unconstitutional in one state, similar laws nationwide are not removed from the statute books, Indeed, a similar state law that was not challenged remains enforceable until the executive branch voluntarily ceases enforcement because the Supreme Court's precedent or because a court has enjoined the application of that specific law. Now, this is a topic that we have discussed before on this channel, though not for quite some time. Uh, For example, uh, in my video, On the landmark Supreme Court case of Cooper v. Aaron, one thing we discussed was how, in Lawrence v. Texas, we can see this dynamic illustrated. Because while it is perhaps shorthand to say that the Supreme Court struck down Texas's criminal prohibition on sodomy, more precisely, the majority opinion issued the following order. The judgment of the Court of Appeals for the Texas 14th District is reversed, and the case is remanded for further proceedings not inconsistent with this opinion. And furthermore, not even the transcendent dimensions of Justice Kennedy's prose could physically remove Section 2106A from the Texas Penal Code. Indeed, The provision remains on the books, albeit appended by a notation from the Texas legislature that Section 2106 was declared unconstitutional in Lawrence v. Texas. And, as Jonathan Mitchell has explained, the Supreme Court does not wield a writ of erasure that blots out unconstitutional legislation. If Texas officials attempted to enforce this prohibition under the judgment in Lawrence, they would be on the hook for damages according to 46 U.S.C. Section 1983, which is deprivation of civil rights uh, under color of law. And that would be available as a civil action against the person wronged in a subsequent suit. But the court's judgment in Lawrence, did not directly implicate the laws of any other state. Even after Lawrence, and to this very day in fact, Virginia's code treats a felon as one who, quote, voluntarily submits to such carnal knowledge, end quote, which includes sodomy. Because the law has not been enforced since Lawrence, it remains on the books, but Any prosecutor who brought sodomy charges under this section, in conflict with Lawrence's precedent, would likewise be on the hook for damages. Now, furthermore, uh, something we discussed quite a bit uh, when we were covering the Dobbs case that overturned Roe and Casey, I brought up the example of the Massachusetts legislature and their express repealing of criminal prohibitions on abortion, adultery, and fornication. And and this was actually uh, fairly far-sighted because this was still done at a time uh, before people knew uh, that Dobbs was going to overturn Roe and Casey. So they were looking forward to the if this happens sort of thing at this point. Now, Such laws, like we are talking about here, the criminal prohibition of abortion, adultery, and fornication would, without question, be declared unconstitutional if challenged in court, after all. A criminal prohibition cannot survive Roe and Casey, and bans on adultery and fornication cannot survive either Lawrence or Bergefell. So why, then, is the state of Massachusetts bothering to repeal These laws. Well, a great article written in the Boston Globe around the time that these were being repealed was covering the Dobbs case, and it explains this beautifully. They said that in passing the bill, many lawmakers cited concerns over whether Trump's most recent nominee to the Supreme Court, Brett Kavanaugh, might eventually tilt the court in favor of overturning its landmark decision in Roe v. Wade allowing states to outlaw abortion again.
2: They note that while a
0: 1981 state high court decision strongly suggests that the Massachusetts Constitution protects abortion rights, advocates say that it is not explicit and it needs clarification from
2: Beacon Hill. And ultimately,
0: uh, I would go on to uh, conclude in that video that if Roe was overturned, the criminal prohibition on abortion, which was still on the books, would become once again good law, and in this, the Massachusetts legislature had wisely rejected the writ of erasure fallacy and left themselves in a much better position come Dobbs than most other states. Well, that is all I have for you guys here today. Uh, Thank you so much for watching. Uh, Just a quick reminder, if you would please take a few seconds and do all of those things that help to uh, trigger Al Gore's rhythm. Uh, If you liked it, hit the like button. If you disliked it, hit the dislike button. Uh, Subscribe to the channel. Uh, don't forget to head over to legallyshow.com where you can sign up for the newsletter, get updates when any new content comes out. Go to LegalEasePodcast.com to find out more about me uh, and the show. Uh, and so, until next time, uh, this has been Bob for Legalese And of course, as always, Cartago de Lenda Est.
1: Won't you tell everybody what the fuck you gotta say? Fuck the police coming straight from the a young nigga got it back cause I'm brown and not the other color, so police think they have the authority to kill a is selling narcotics you rather see me in the pen then me and Lorenzo rolling in a benzo be the police out of shape and when i finish.